You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So we usually preach into the Psalms every summer. We call it the Songs of the Summer. And that's because if you read the Psalms and you're looking for some form of practical nugget, it's not always there. It's rather a music. Uh, it's, it's known as praise hymns. These are the ones that they would actually be singing in their churches. So as we read this, this is something that was triumphant. This is something that we would be singing out loud. And a lot of times, this one says, to the choir master. And so we say the songs of the summer, but they're also prayers. If the, if the Lord's prayer is what to pray, Jesus says, pray this. The psalms are how to pray. And today, we're going to talk about how to praise We're also going to see how God's justice in the world is actually fueled and best displayed in praise of him. And so would you please pray for for that today? Join me in prayer as as we dive into God's word. God, would you do amazing things today? Would you bring words to my lips that are pleasing to you? Would you convict us now of our sinfulness? Would you please be with us now as we as we go forward into an age, into a day that is a little uncertain, but Lord, we know your word is certain. So we ask that in Christ's name, you would do amazing things for the good of your people and the good of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. As a quick caveat, it is allergy season. I promise I do not have COVID, but my voice will crack and cut out. His won't, the Lord's won't, but mine will. And that's just fine. I typically get a dry, sore throat. Uh, Allergies is just kicking my butt this week. So I say that to know, don't let that distract you, because he's going to use imperfect means this entire time. That was what he intended to do. But if I feel a little bit shaky, something's in the air. And I don't think it's COVID. I think it's just ragweed. So with that, would you please join me in Psalm 9? I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish, and you have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out, the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell amongst the people his deeds, for he avenges blood, is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. 
it would be easy, very, very easy for me, and it was very tempting to simply initially read this and morph it into a social context that for 30 minutes is exactly what you wanted to hear, politicized on one side or the other. And while I actually strayed from the passage, maybe decided, no, I don't want to preach this passage because of the clear application that this is going to have for us right now. Clearly, God has something to say for us right now. Through some prayer that I had months ago, this came to me in a book called The Songs of Jesus, and it was Pastor Timothy Keller. And it was right during, right during the George Floyd protests, and it was a call to worship to my heart. And now, we're going to dive in, and after further study of this, we see that it's not about justice. The, the core thing I want you to see is not that this is about justice and it has something to say. This, in fact, is about praise. This is about God's righteous judgment and how thankful we are through that, through praise. David is not making a political statement here. He is praising the Lord for how good he is. Justice is the backdrop of it. The sweet correction of wrong. What we would see here in the, in the Greek is mishpat. It's, it's, again, you don't have to understand what that means. Besides, it's a cause. It's a worthy cause for judgment. And apparently, God takes good care to pay attention to that. But we find the first thing here. True joy is not found in just thinking about justice and judgment. True joy for David here is found in praising God's ultimate power, his justice, and his goodness towards his people. The sense that something very, very wrong was brought to right justice is the foundation of why God is good and deserves every bit of our praise. And David here is showing us exactly how to do that. He is even outlining who to do that to in case you missed it. And he gives us a good reason why to do that. So even in the first verse alone, I almost preached the entire sermon on the first two verses alone just because David knows exactly what he's doing when it comes to praise. And one more note on that. Don't you think that there is a solution to be found that is outside anything you're seeing on social media right now is it possible by this, this passage right here has that? And what we're about to read is something that we could be helped and we could bring God glory to, but that actually might help those around us. I want to run through this passage and convince you of that today. We're going to walk it line by line. We're going to jump around, so have your Bibles ready to go. Verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord. With my whole heart, I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. The I wills here, there's four of them. He says, I will, I will, I will be doing this. David is deciding. And it is the act of him committing that displays his love for the Lord. True worship takes commitment and dedication. He trusts the Lord 
And he displays that by his full commitment to do so. It's like a beautiful marriage. He is deciding that the love he feels in his heart is not something that's going to fade. He is deciding to find joy in the Lord. Yes, it takes discipline to praise the Lord. Joy is not always found in your ambition to praise, but the decision to praise. The emotion is ignited by the dedication. And this is true right here for David. His circumstances are trash right now. All right, he's getting chased down by his family trying to get murdered. There probably is not a lot of good emotions that would cause him to think that circumstantially God's all that great. But what happens? I will praise you for your name. I will praise for all of your wonderful deeds. And with what? What does that lead him to do? It ignites emotion in him. It says, with my whole heart. Now, what does that mean? With my whole heart. We could, we could, that means this. It means this. Well, the word for heart here is not actually what you think. It's actually more closely translates to mind. But in biblical times, that meant your whole being, your whole self. So it's, it's not that it's just your heart. It's not just your mind. When they said this, they meant your whole being would be praising. True praise involves the whole being, the mind, body, heart, and soul. It takes all of you. When you're truly, truly praising the Lord, you're going to see it. And so what does this look like? What would it look like for us to truly praise the Lord with all of our heart? We, we, we can hear what David's saying here. There's, there's an inflection that is with, with his whole heart, but what does that mean? I'm going to argue that you know exactly what it means when somebody praises something they really, really love. You know what this looks like, right? Like when something's really excited somebody, if, if, if your favorite team won or if you got something that you really, really wanted, you are all about it. And the best example that I have, and everyone has seen probably the effects of this, is what we ex- experienced two years ago, the Minneapolis miracle. Packer fans just... Take it easy, all right? It was a good thing. You got to give us that, all right? But the Minneapolis miracle was something that a true fan base who was looking for something good to finally happen for them, and they've been waiting and dedicating themselves to it. And that when all hope was lost, and it was me and a bunch of people watching the game, when all hope was lost, there's not a worse feeling than the silence and depression that was like, the game is going to, we're going to lose again in the playoffs. And then the guy threw the football, the other guy caught it, and he ran all the way past the finish line, and we just erupted, and everybody was praising. And you see YouTube videos of everybody. Their hands are in the air. They're praising the guy on the television. I'm jumping up and down. People are hugging, and we're, we're about tearing up. Why? Because the thing we really wanted finally happened. The thing our hearts desired actually brought joy to our hearts. And that meant something. Now, what would that look like in Connection Church? What does that look like in a worship setting? How does that impact your vision for what worship looks like? I'm not saying that you need to jump up and down and scream. I was raised in a conservative background. But I can tell you that's not always helpful. That's not always a biblical mindset just to assume that, well, 
we're at church camp, right? And, and we get ready to, to praise the Lord and we, we sing the Chris Tomlin song. We raise up holy hands and, and two people raise their hands. And everybody else is just terrified to do anything of the sort. They're just worried, right? Well, that same group of people has no problem riding the clouds on the days of Elijah, right? Nobody has an issue at the church campfire riding the, riding the clouds and shining like the sun. But when it actually comes down to it, um, it gets a little difficult. Here's a note. The book of Revelation, we get a little picture of what the days of Elijah are actually going to look like. The book of Revelation says, when living creatures see God, they fall on their face and worship him. They can't take the very sight of the thing that is so awesome, they fall flat. How distracting would it be if everyone was on their faces during worship? What would that look like? It would look very, very distracting to some. But at the same time, it seems to be that if we think of eternity and what we're going to be praising, a true worship of God takes your whole being. Now, there's a different camp. There's a different type of camp. I didn't go to this camp, but it's all out, right? You're, you're all out, lights off, lasers on, your hands are all over the place. The Lord is here, and you can feel it. But there's, there's a danger because what can happen, and I think if, if you're from that background, you could tell that sometimes in the absence of that setting, in the absence of that emotion, you just don't feel it. You feel lost. And then you'll attach worship with the emotion of it. Now, it comes with great emotion, but it isn't just that. And if we're reliant on that, then we'll be careful. We might just lose it and not find that again. And so... Let's take a look. What spurs David's praise? This is the example of someone that is praising that we would ideally like to replicate in in some regards, not because he's a strong man, but simply because he's praising the Lord with all of his heart. Why does he praise? Is it the atmosphere? Is it the music? Is it the absence of distraction? No. He says what? I will praise. I will recount all your wonderful deeds What brings joy and praise to David's lips is first and foremost a reflection of what God has done. He doesn't look to the current circumstance for hope. He marvels at God's finished work. His external expression, the the thing that comes out of him is ignited by an internal thankfulness, a reflection on the good things that God has done. What lights his heart to sing is God's faithfulness throughout all the generations. He's been studying this his entire life, and he knows that if God's not good right in this minute, according to his emotions, he knows God's been good throughout all generations. And that's what fuels him. Now think about this. How do you know you can trust someone? How do you know you can really trust someone, right? It's by their actions, it's, it's by what they've done, right? They, well, right now you're kind of making me mad and it's irritating, but it's not through that. It, it's, it's not through that emotion. It's through their actions. David trusts the Lord because of what he has done, and it lights him up. And so if you're not feeling it, if you're not praising this morning, you might have to repent of not believing that God is actually that good and hasn't done anything for you. You just might not be that thankful deep down in your heart that you need anything from God. This 
This is honestly true for me. Uh, we had a good example last week in Mr. James Swanson preaching. And if you didn't get the chance to see it, towards the end there, there was something that gripped my attention above all. And he was absolutely true, truly feeling the sorrow of what he was preaching in a context of something that was really, really difficult. And I looked at that man and I said, I can't do that. I can't stand up and have that boldness. I can't be that emotionally vulnerable in front of people. And I found myself finding, questioning myself all week. Here you are, Andy. You're going you're to preach about praise. Yet I seem to have none. Some ailments going on, you know, some, some allergies. I'm just not very energetic. You know, come on, God, light a fire in me. And I had to pray and drop to my face and said, Lord, I don't love you as much as I thought. Because if I did, we wouldn't have any issue. You'd see that in my daily routine. My roommates would probably not question whether I love the Lord or not. But I'm not thankful. I don't know what I need to be thankful for. It's not brought to my attention every single day. Then I was hit with a little bit of Charles Spurgeon. And he said this, If we consider our own sinfulness and nothingness, we must feel that every work of preservation, forgiveness, conversion, deliverance, sanctification is a marvelous work. Preservation. I could just thank God that I'm breathing right now. He's sustaining my every breath. When you breathe in, God's making it so. When you breathe out, he meant for that to be the case. But beyond breathing, forgiveness, conversion, deliverance, you get conversion, he saved my soul. What else do you want? What else could there be? My own sinfulness and nothingness. He just hits it right, right too. The, pro- the problem that I have, the reason I'm not praising is because I don't believe I'm nothingness. I think I'm pretty awesome. But I'm, I'm not. I didn't need saving from awesomeness. God doesn't need to be very powerful to save me from my depths of my sin if I'm just good enough to make it happen. But that's how I know you can really trust him. How can you know you can trust somebody? Well, by their actions. How do you really know you can trust somebody? Because they love you when you don't even deserve it. That's when you know that there's a love beyond whatever thing that you deserved. So true praise requires humility. I need a heavy dose of that most times. Accepting that we're not that great and that we need that. We're in the age of the selfie right now. You all know what that means, right? The most popular form of photography is the selfie. Literally, myself in the picture, yourself in the picture. And so now instead of going to Mount Rushmore and people taking pictures awe-inspiring Mount Rushmore and taking a picture of that, what do they do? You turn around and you take a picture of you with Mount Rushmore in the background. The focal point of most pictures and Instagrams and posts is us. Everyone's giving their thoughts. Everyone needs to give it right now. My thoughts, my expertise, my perspective. Here's what you need to know about this article. Here's what you need to know about this political party. 
We need to be leaning more on the left side here, on the right side here. No, 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 no. Here's what really ha happens with the economy. Let me tell you. And everybody's giving their thought. And everybody feels so good about doing that, right? Everybody's super smart and convincing each other with all of this noise on social media. Wrong. Divorce rates are higher than ever. Depression rates are skyrocketing. Suicide is climbing and is at an all-time high. People have more of an outlet to express themselves now more than ever, and yet it is making us miserable. The very focal point is a busted crutch that is, I am awesome and I can do this. And the, the thing that you need to hear is Andy Jorgensen's thoughts. Clearly, that's not working right now. Clearly, there's something, there's something greater. Is it possible we're praising the wrong thing? Is it possible your heart doesn't sing because you're the object of it? The object of our praise. You, you can praise almost anything rightly, just like David praises. But the object, the who, is the most important piece. Get it wrong, and your praise will be as lifeless as a Zoom call on a midsummer's night when the sun is shining and everyone else is out to play. Your life song will constantly be off tune if the lyrics are constantly centered around something that is broken and weak. The rhythm of your life will be off and you will feel inadequate if you are not praising something that is. The rest of the passage Verses 3 through 7 gives us a very, very convincing picture of who that is that we praise. Verse 3 and 4, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and they perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Who maintains your personal justice? The Lord. You don't have to worry about anyone that's wronged you anything that they've done, because it's judged by a righteous Lord. Verses 5 through 6, you have rebuked the nations, you have made the wicked perish, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins, their cities you rooted out, the very memory of them has perished. There's no other narrative than this. Who destroys the wicked? Me? You? Everyone else? No, the Lord. Who erases their name forever? The Lord. Who rebukes the nations? The Lord. It says, you have uprooted cities. You have rebuked the nations. You are seated on the throne as a righteous judge. He's the righteous judge, so I don't have to be. You don't have to judge anyone. There's a righteous judge. Can you rebuke nations? Can you make things perish before you? Did you see that? My enemies perish before your presence. I can't do that. I don't need to pretend to do that. I don't need to be the center of that belief. The only thing that can come close, that we could even conceive of that is this man-made, is a nuclear bomb. That's the only thing that makes things completely wiped out. That's got the world in the deadlock. How, how much is that helping us right now? This is a God of power, 
true power. Terrifying, awesome, feared, wonderful power. And he deserves to be the object of our praise. He is the center of that, and he is the source of joy in praise every day. And he does not take kindly to those who mess with his glory or his people. Did you read that? He smites his enemies into nothing. That should terrify us. Before God Almighty, as the book of Revelation shows, there is an awesome, fearful, terrifying aspect of God that we should be worshiping with all of our hearts. And we should rightfully be terrified. But read the next few verses. Just read chapter 7. Chapter, verse 7 with me. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. What? Are you kidding me? He judges the world with righteousness, uprightness, a stronghold in times of trouble. And you know your and you who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O oh Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Are you kidding me? He's good. All the power in the in the universe, and he uses it for good. There is a judge for all of this. Everything. There is a judge for this. And he executes his judgment with fairness and righteousness. Isn't that what everyone would like? Isn't that what we want right now? He does hear the cries of the afflicted. Did you read chapters, or did you read verses 7 through 8, 9? He is a stronghold for the oppressed. Did you hear that? He advocates for the oppressed. He does not forget the cries of the afflicted. Can you, can you just feel your heart start to swell at the thought of a God who's so powerful, he sits on a righteous throne of judgment. He's powerful enough to wipe away the nations from the face of the earth, yet he executes it with goodness. He's a God that advocates for the oppressed and the afflicted. And so do we. The writer here does not ignore or minimize the pain of the oppressed that he is reading about. The things he is witnessing is not made up, and neither does God. He also does not insert himself as the solution. The writer doesn't minimize, the writer does not ignore, but the writer does not insert himself as their solution. He points to the better one. He praises the better one because he is the solution. He is a refuge for the oppressed in times of trouble. He is the one who does not forget the cries of the afflicted. And he will seek an accounting for the bloodshed. Doesn't that swell you up just a little bit to know that there is justice in the world? Not only now, but for eternity. There is eternal justice and a hope that you and I have. How do we know that that's true? 
Because he not only cares for the least of these, he became the least of these. He understands what it's like to be the least of these. God Almighty came down, became afflicted, became the oppressed, and he knows exactly what it's like. He became the oppressed, took people's shame, took a bunch of injustice. He took biasness. You better believe that there was bigotry. There was people judging him constantly. Biblical examples of that in the New Testament here. The Gospels paint a picture of a man who was afflicted. But he didn't just stop there. God Almighty didn't just come down and become some pathetic creature. No, no, no. He did that so he could understand it. Then he did something insane. He then became the enemy. You know, verses 4 through 6, the terrifying things that we just read about, we actually deserve that. We're the enemies. We're the ones that should have everlasting ruin. Our names do not deserve to be plastered all over social media right now. They deserve to be blotted out. Our cities deserve to be uprooted as enemies of God. But he not only became oppressed, he took the wrath of the enemy. He took that so we wouldn't have to. Everything you read about, you don't have to eternally be terrified if you trust that he actually did this for your sake. That's injustice. That is true injustice. Having a perfect person becoming oppressed, even though he didn't deserve it, taking punishment, even though I deserved it, that'll warp your brain, but it'll also cause you to praise. It'll also swell your heart for the good news that we have for eternity, that every single thing that we can read about that we deserved, we are freed from. Because of Christ, we are free forever. And because of that, true justice has been served. True justice was served when Christ took on the wrath of God and sin for the sake of your eternity. Isn't that a hope that people could use right now? Isn't this a little bit, a little bit more hopeful a lot more hopeful than any narrative that is going on on the outside. Everybody knows there's something wrong right now. There's two things. Everyone has a shared sense that something's deeply wrong and there's a confused resolution about it. Everybody knows, everyone knows 2020 is a train wreck, right? For me to say that this is crazy and this is sucks and this is terrible, that's not surprising to you, right? Schools are shut down. Pools are shut down, heaven forbid. <laughs> what are the kids going to do? Everyone looks like they're about ready to rob a bank. You go grocery shopping, and what once was a, what's, what was something, a sign that maybe we shouldn't trust this person is actually now a sign that they're a good citizen, and they're doing the right thing. And if you don't look like you're robbing a bank, you're a bad citizen. If that doesn't twist your brain, I don't know what will. The president is a reality TV star. I don't care what side you're on. He, he was the star of The Apprentice that we all watched in 2004. That's crazy. People are sick. People are dying. Streets are being shut down. Cities are being destroyed. It's not a coronavirus. There's racial, there's racial tension in the world. Nobody can agree on what to do about that. 
Nobody can give you a good solution. Everyone's going to give you their thoughts, but no one's going to be able to give you a unified solution. Some think it's in more rights. Some people think it's in a different leader. Some it's in some new ideas. It's about time we start progressing from old ways. But we as Christians, we know better. We understand, no, duh, things are wrong, but things have been wrong. They've been wrong for a long time, and it's not because the nation's going going to trash. It's not because of COVID. It's not because the president has a big mouth. Something's off with people's souls. That's what's wrong with them. That's what's wrong with me. Yes, there's white supremacy in this culture. I've benefited from that. But you know what's worse? A self-supremacy that leads me to believe I don't need God. At the heart of the issue is a misguided affection for the world. A praise of the things that are right now for the next 10 to 20 to 60 years, however long we have on this planet. A misguided praise of ourselves. That's what's off. People are stuck praising the wrong thing. Not doing what they were built to do. They were meant to feel joy and praise. And people can feel it. Like I said, everyone knows something's deep off inside. People deep down, they feel this, right? And if they don't know Jesus, it is pretty hopeless. Sure, 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 you go make as much money as you want. Yeah, you could become the president. You could do whatever. Whatever it is that the vice is of the world, you can do all of those things. But at the end of the day, we all have that deep down pit of fear, inadequacy, and disappointment. And deep down, it drives us insane. The constant feeling of inadequacy. So what do people do with that fear that is constantly there, that they're not enough? They express it in fearful political opinions, emotional posts, and colored up selfies, hoping that one day they'll look in the mirror and see something that they actually like. They want to look out the window in hopes that someday they'll see a world that isn't awful. That's no hope. There's no filter that's going to fix that. That's no answer to the problems of the world right now. But friends in Christ, you have the answer. You have the answer. You know what it looks like. You've been freed as a Christian. You know exactly what their souls need. And it's not in political rallies. It's not in presidential picks. It's not in a social media opinion. It's in being free to sing with all your heart the joys of the one that saved you for eternity, the joys of Christ. He is the answer. He is the freedom that they desire. Deep down, there's something off. There's something broken between them and God. And they just need to look beyond themselves to see the greater joy that is theirs. If only they would behold that. They need to do what they were built for. They need to praise God Almighty for how great he is. Light their souls up for the thing that's actually awesome. They need to praise the one who is a refuge for the oppressed in times of trouble. They need to acknowledge the one that could do it better than we ever could. So we, we care for the oppressed. We love the oppressed. We love the oppressed so that they might be that much closer to knowing and praising the God who does it infinitely better than anything they could have ever hoped for.
That's why we do it. We point to the greater good. And so we're going to praise now. We're going to practice Psalm 9. Not because coronavirus is done. Don't know when that's going to happen. Not when sin and racism is not affecting the planet anymore. Not when oppression is gone. But right now we are going to pray because of his wonderful deeds. Hear this call to worship in verses 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord. He who sits enthroned in Zion, tell the peoples his deeds. Go ahead, tell the peoples of his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cries of the afflicted. And so neither do we. We just praise the one who takes care of it. Would you join me in that? God Almighty, we thank you for being such a refuge. We thank you so much for giving us something to praise. We don't deserve any of this, Lord. And then at times when we don't feel like we are adequate, would you please remind us of how great you are, how powerful you are? Would you move the people in this room not to give opinions to people, not to give half-truths and half-hopes, but would you please give them a hope through people who believe in their souls that you have got something great for us, that you are the thing we ought praise. We ask this is true in Jesus' name. Amen.